Let's pray together. You know, as we've been singing and listening, hearing testimony of things that God is doing, for whatever reason, my thoughts were turned to a prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3. And I just want to make that our prayer as we go to the Word this morning, simply to say, take the words that he prayed for a church long ago in a far-off place and make it our prayer this morning and simply say, Lord, for this reason we bow our knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that you would grant us, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power through your spirit in the inner person, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And Father, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend, together with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that, Father, we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And Father, we agree with the Apostle Paul when he says now to him, Jesus, who is able to do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him, to Jesus, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, I don't understand what it means, what exactly Paul had in mind. Maybe it was just something even too too far beyond words when he said that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. But Father, I want that. I want that for us. I want that for all your people. Lord, wherever your people have gathered today to know the love of Jesus Christ that surpasses explanation and definition. Lord, it can't be written down in an equation. It can't be encapsulated in an essay. Father, there's no song, however beautiful it may be, that can fully capture the depth and the height and the length and the width of the love of God that's been poured out on us through your son, Jesus Christ. But Father, if, if Paul could pray it and record it in your word, then we can ask for it too, that we would know your love. Father, that we would, this morning, many of us rest in your love. Father, that others of us would be convicted and changed by your love because we've been far from it. And Father, Paul says that throughout this prayer that we would know these things together. Father, we thank you that wherever we go as believers, the Holy Spirit dwells within us, that we are never apart from you. But Father, there is something unique and something wonderful when we come together and we listen to each other speak and sing and pray and, and all the rest. And Father, I'm just going to ask that in the remainder of the time we have together now as we go to your word, as we look at the scriptures, Father, that you'd give me much grace as I teach that I would decrease so that Jesus would increase. And Father, that we wouldn't be listening merely for the words of a preacher and the points of an outline, but that we'd pay attention to the stirring of your spirit in our hearts, dealing with each one of us, each man, woman, and child as the case and the need may be. Father, we ask this morning that as always you would guide us in truth, that you would guard us from error, that you would deliver us from distraction, and that you would help us to see Jesus. May we see him clearly this morning in the preaching of your word. May we see him only this morning in the same. And Father, we ask that when we leave in a while, it would be rejoicing because we got to come today together and meet with Jesus, whom we love and in whose name we pray. All of God's people said together, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Once again, as always, as you're taking your seats, boys and girls, you are dismissed for Children's Church. Um, if you're new today, that's five-year-olds through second graders, they are more than welcome to head out that back door, go spend some time in God's Word. As I invite all of us to grab a Bible in whatever form you may have it in your hands this morning and turn with me once again to Mark chapter 9. I want you to make your way in the Bible to Mark chapter 9 where we continue this journey of following the Son we're going to read the text to start the message this morning, so I would invite you to find your way there quickly as we look at the passage together. 
As you're doing that, because that may take you a moment, I'm also just going to, to, to add on to, to piggyback on Ted's announcement earlier about Fresh Encounter this week. You know I'm always going to do that because I love Fresh Encounter and I love our, our, our first Wednesday of the month prayer gathering, prayer and worship gathering, looking forward to it. But I want to I don't just want to ask you to come. I want to urge you to come this month. Meet us in the prayer room Wednesday night at 7. I've been visited with the elders about this. And, and, and our prayer focus, sometimes we have a, a very simple prayer focus. Sometimes we have a very pointed one. We are going to this Wednesday night. Uh, many of you were here a couple of weeks ago when Tim Countryman, one of our elders, gave an elder update. Just kind of where we are as a church right now. And there were some hard things to sort of process and digest in that announcement about attendance and finances and just trying to discern God's direction. That's what we're going to pray about on Wednesday night. We're going to look at, at, at a passage in John 15 uh, where Jesus talked about the vine and the branches and abiding in him and pruning and all that other fun stuff. And uh, we're going to use that to pray for our church. And so if this is your church and you care about the things that Tim was speaking of a couple of weeks ago, uh, I'm going to ask you very fervently not to sit this one out, not to say, well, we'll let the elders and deacons pray about that. That's their job. No, it's not. It's our job. And, and I don't mean to, to guilt or to, to, to unnecessarily or inappropriately persuade you, but I am asking you to join us, uh, that we might pray about these things together. Because when God answers, don't you want to say, hey, I prayed about that. And then I saw his answer. Not somebody prayed about that, and I get to live in the, in the joy of the answer. You can do that, but it's not best. So I want to urge you, Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, join us. We'll worship, we'll pray, we'll read scripture, and we will seek the face of God together, just as we're going to do now in his word. So Mark chapter 9 we return to the story, Mark's account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. This morning I'm going to begin reading in Mark 9, 38. I'm going to go through the end of the chapter, verse 50, where this is what the Word of God says. It says, John, this would be John the disciple, John the apostle, said to him, said to Jesus, John said, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, don't hinder him. For there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For who, he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he'd been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. Where, and I'll just make a note here, there's a couple of verses here that may not be in everyone's translation, English translation, but bear with me, we'll all end at the same place. My Bible says in verse 44, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
You know, last Sunday I mentioned to you, I said when we came to our study of, of Mark's gospel of God's word, I said that from this point forward, I said it was already happening, that, that throughout the rest of Mark's gospel, Jesus' focus is going to begin to narrow. He's going to spend less time with the crowds and more time with the disciples. Less time on, on illustration and, and more on instruction and application because Jesus was in the process, more pointedly than ever, of preparing his disciples for what was to come. And we know what was to come, the cross, the empty tomb, and ultimately the great commission, the fact that he was going to hand over the ministry to them to take it to the whole world. And I remind you of that because clearly that's what's happening here. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's to come. But a curious thing about this particular section of Scripture, the verses we just read, is that many scholars believe, and it would seem, having looked into their reasoning, that, they are, that they're almost certainly right, that what we just read here was most likely not a single sermon or lesson that Jesus gave on one occasion. It kind of reads that way, but if you take a second look at it, it kind of doesn't. Instead, what most uh, Bible scholars believe about this passage is that it is a compilation, a collection of various teachings Jesus gave on multiple different occasions. There are probably things he said many different times in several different contexts, but that, that Mark, the author of the gospel, under the authority and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, put them together here for a very particular reason. And that was to give us a profile, there's a key word this morning, to provide us with a profile or a description of the man or the woman or the young person who is serious about living as a follower of the Son. It's a profile, it's a, it's a description of a devoted, committed believer in Jesus Christ. I especially like how Kent Hughes puts it in his commentary on the passage when he says what Mark is describing here are believers who, here's his quote, Believers who, quote, wherever we are, our presence, listen to this, our presence quickens the conscience, elevates conversation, restrains ethical corruption, promotes honesty, and raises the moral atmosphere of society. And it's the last line I really want to key on. It's that last line I want to park on, and really I'm going to use to frame the rest of this morning's sermon, and that is this. So if you're going to write something down as here's where we're starting, here's where we're starting. The point of this passage and the way we're going to look at it this morning is this, that followers of the Son, followers of Jesus should elevate the atmosphere everywhere they go. They should elevate the spiritual tone and atmosphere wherever they go, whatever they're doing, Whomever they are with, we should be people of influence. And of course, the inevitable question is, can that be said of you? Can it be said of me? Can it be said of us when we are together here or in another place? Can, can we genuinely, here's the question, can we genuinely listen to what Jesus said here and look each other in the eye and say, yep, this is us. This is who we are. This is what we're like, or at least it's the direction we are seeking to move. Well, to find out, do you want the answer to that question? Anybody want the answer to that question this morning? I hope you do. If you do, here's how we're going to spend the remainder of our time together in this passage. I'm going to direct your attention not to everything Jesus said here, because he said a lot, and frankly, about half of it I don't understand anyway. But what I do understand, from what I do understand, I want to direct you to four specific things. Four ways that you and I as followers of the Son, can elevate the atmosphere to the glory of God. 
for the sake of the gospel. Four ways you and I can elevate the atmosphere. I'm not making them up. It's what Jesus said. And the first one is this. The first thing Jesus says in this passage, the first way that you and I can elevate the atmosphere to the glory of God is, number one, we can recognize that it is what unites us that comes first. Recognize that what unites us as believers comes first. Now, Jesus' words, if you look at verse 40, when I read them to you, when I read them for myself this week, they are in one respect a bit of a head-scratcher when Jesus says, for he who is not against us is for us. And the reason I say that that's a little bit perplexing is because in another place, actually Matthew 12, 30, to be specific, Jesus said almost the very reverse. He said, whoever's not with me is against me. So on one occasion, Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. But here he says, if you're not against me, you're for me. So what's the right answer? What's, what's going on? It would appear to be one of those dirty little, you know, paradoxes, contradictions in the Bible that skeptics are always telling us are everywhere and it can't be trusted, but that's not the case at all. Because in the other passage, when Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, he was talking about Pharisees, a specific group of Pharisees who'd come to him and said, you are doing, you are serving and working as a minister of Satan. You're demonically possessed, you're doing demonic works, and Jesus said, you know, if you're not with me, you're against me. But here it's different. Here in verse 40, when Jesus said, whoever is not against us is for us, he's talking about a follower, we presume a believer, who had been casting out demons in Christ's name. But if you really pay attention to the passage, that's not what bothered the disciples. That's not why John came to him on their behalf to begin with. No, what bugged the disciples was this, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he wasn't following us. He didn't check with us first. He didn't file the right paperwork. He didn't, we didn't, he didn't ask us, because we're disciples on our way to becoming apostles, but he didn't go through us. He's just out there doing his thing in the name of Jesus, and he's not going through the right channels. Probably what bugged him even more is the fact that he'd been, this man had been successful, where if you remember a couple of weeks ago, they tried to cast out some demons, and it hadn't gone so well. And so this is the dilemma they're having. This is the problem the disciples are wrestling with. In other words, what I want you to see in these first three verses is that the disciples of Jesus were drawing lines and choosing sides. And once again, I would say to you what I've been saying throughout this series, if they can do it, so can I. If they can do it, so can we. Because what John's complaint here reveals is an attitude of suspicion toward fellow believers. They're not exactly like us. They don't do things when they get together the same way we do. They don't worship the same way. They don't preach the same way. Got some interesting little quirky things that, that I'm not sure if that's right or not. I'm not sure if that's the way it should be done. Can they be trusted? Is their doctrine straight and correct? Do we, do we match up all down the line? We might not agree on everything, meaning the implication is we probably can't walk together. We probably can't say we're truly in sync with one another. And I got thinking about that. And I got convicted by that. Because isn't it true for many of us, especially those of us who've walked with Jesus a long, uh, long time, is oftentimes the first thing we see in a fellow believer is where they are different from us. They raise their hands, I don't. They sing loud, we sing soft. They do this, but we do that. We're different from one another, and different means watch out, be suspicious, and we start drawing lines, and we start choosing sides. 
But if you look at verse 39, Jesus said, didn't say to draw lines. Jesus said to draw a circle. Jesus said to draw a circle, singular, not multiple circles, a single circle. Verse 39, Jesus said, don't hinder him, for there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name. That's the key. In my name means they, 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 they trust me, they believe me, they are serving me, they are on my team who will soon be able afterward to speak evil of me. Here's the circle Jesus is drawing can you look at me and I look at you and say, hey, we share something. This following conviction, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead. And that it is repentant faith in him alone by which we are saved. Can we agree on that? Then we can walk together. If we can agree on that, then we can walk together. Because when we recognize, just think about it. When we recognize that it is what unites us that comes first and everything else is secondary, we elevate the atmosphere to the glory of God. Because immediately we're focusing on the, the gospel. And everything else finds its proper place. That's the first thing Jesus says in this passage. This profile of a follower. We focus on what unites us and that comes first. Here's the second thing Jesus said. And if these seem sort of disconnected, that's probably by design. Because again, as I said, this is a compilation of teachings. Not necessarily one flowing sermon that Jesus gave. But there's a second thing Jesus says in verses 41 and 42. A second way that you and I, if we're serious about following the Son, can elevate the atmosphere to the glory of God. And it is this, number two. Stress when we stress that the small stuff matters. When we stress, when we emphasize that what we would call the small stuff matters. Did you know that John Wooden, who knows who John Wooden is? John Wooden, most successful men's college basketball coach of all time, won 10 titles at UCLA in 12 years, won 88 games in a row, every single year coached the, the 12 best basketball players in America, year after year after year. He, his, his eighth or ninth guy is better than everybody else's first. They're the best. Well, John Wooden in the 60s and 70s won, as I said, 10 titles in 12 years. No one's been more successful in that, in that respect than he has. But do you know how he began every single new basketball season? At the beginning of every season, again, he's got the best players in the country, full-ride scholarships sitting in front of him. At the beginning of every new college basketball season, he sat his team down and he gave them a talk that began by teaching them how to put on their socks, how to tie their shoes. And then he built from there because the small stuff matters. Many of you know the name Vince Lombardi, one of the most successful professional football coaches of all time. Coached the Packers, five titles, 10 years, something like that. Began every season. Professional athletes, guys getting paid to play the game. They're the best of the best of the best. Every year, he would begin training camp with a speech that began, gentlemen, this is a football, right? And then he would go from there. And everybody agrees that one of the primary reasons those two men were so successful in their chosen field of, of athletic endeavor is because they stressed the small stuff. It wasn't about trick plays and crazy designs and new ideas. It was about the basics. Let's get the basics right, and then we'll build from there. Now, with that in mind, listen again to verses 41 and 42. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, because you're a believer. Truly I say to you, he, she will not lose their reward. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he'd been cast into the sea. Now most of us would probably say there's a great big difference between casting out demons and handing out Dixie cups, right? I mean, just on the surface, big, big, big difference. Jesus disagrees. Jesus says, no, that's not the case at all. 
Because what Jesus understood and he wants us to recognize is that God's, as we talked about last week, God's economy is different. And what Jesus says is that it's the way we do the small stuff that is of massive eternal significance. Because when you look at verse 41, this idea of handing out a cup of cold water, Jesus means a literal, give another fellow believer in need a cup of water, that that's a blessed thing to do. But what it really represents is simple acts of hospitality. Simple, small, often unseen acts of hospitality toward one another. Because here's the thing, it's the little things that connect the dots between our talk and our walk. It's in the little things that we show whether or not we believe Monday through Saturday what we preach and affirm on Sunday morning. Actions, here's the way I like to look at them. What Jesus is really talking about here are actions that are probably best recognized when they don't get done. We say, well, somebody should have done that. For example, let me just pull one that, that crossed my mind as I was thinking about this week. Have you ever thought about, and I'm not going to name anybody's names, I'm not going to put anybody on the spot, but have you ever walked into church on Sunday morning and wondered, where's the communion bread come from? A silly question, but where's the communion bread come from? Well, I know something that you don't, and I'm not saying who it is because they don't want it to be told. But for the last almost 20 years, there's one person in our church family who every other week bakes the bread, cuts it up, and brings it to church. Doesn't want anybody else to know. And then there's another couple who come in on Saturday when all the building's dark and no one's here and they prepare it all. Why? So that you and I can walk in on Sunday morning and receive it. Truly, I say to you, their reward is great. And I'm not kidding. Because what are they doing? They're making sure that you and I are able to worship. And if they didn't do their job, stuff wouldn't get done. It's every bit as important as the person who delivers the communion talk. The opening prayer leads in worship. It matters. And Jesus says, truly, they will not lose their reward. Verse 42, Jesus says, not, it's just, not just if we do the small stuff, but how we do the small stuff. Because he says the way in which we do the small stuff, and you understand the way in which I'm using that term, can help or hinder another believer's faith. The way stuff gets done. Again, just to cite another example, not picking on anybody in any way. I'm just citing a, 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 a real-life example. Think of the difference between a happy and a cranky nursery worker. <laughs> right? Think about it. You drop your kid off, you send your little child in there, and you've got someone who's happy, ready, willing, and excited to take care of them, or you've got someone who isn't. Right? Think of the difference. The message that sends. Every week I walk in those rooms, and I'm not blowing my own horn, I just want you to know, I pray about this because I think it matters so much. Because the way in which that task is done, things like children's church and Sunday school, just equally apply, but especially nursery. We are telling our children by example, from the earliest months of life, this is what a Christian is. And it's a very short hop, skip, and jump to this is who Jesus is. He's happy and welcoming and glad to see you. Or he's cranky and indifferent and can't wait till it's over. Wow. It would be better. It'd be better just that they didn't show up at all. And not do it. If they can. And again, that's one example among many possibilities. Because the small stuff matters. Amen? Amen. And it can elevate the atmosphere to the glory of God. What unites us comes first. The small stuff matters. Jesus continues in verses 43 through 48. Gives us a third way we can elevate the atmosphere to the glory of God. A third way we can live practically as devoted followers of Jesus. And that is being willing and actually choosing, thirdly, to speak the truth about eternity. Third thing Jesus talks about here is speaking the truth about eternity. You know, Friday morning at our 
men's prayer group, one of the guys asked, because he'd read ahead and looked at the passage. He said, Aaron, you think we're going to need extra medical attention on hand for the Sunday sermon? Because Jesus says some pretty radical stuff in this passage. And he does. If you look at the verses we just read, his language is extreme. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, do what? Cut it off. off. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, what? If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Jesus is using some pretty heavy language here. Not sure we've seen him speak or heard him speak this way before. Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not calling for self-harm. He's not advocating self-mutilation in the pursuit of holiness. But he spoke that way in such extreme language because he was, in fact, talking about life's single most important question. Where are you going to spend eternity? Where will you wake up one second after you die? Life's single most important question. And he's putting it before his disciples and anyone else who will listen. Because when Jesus talks about entering life, I want you to look again at verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled. He says the same thing in verse 45, to enter life. Now, verse 47 unlocks what he means by enter life. When he says, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God. So when Jesus uses the word life here, he's talking about eternal life. Entering into a personal saving relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he means when he talks about life. Something that begins here the moment we trust Christ and obviously takes us into heaven for all of eternity. At the same time, what does Jesus also acknowledge here? There is a very real place called hell. That that is the alternative to entering into life is entering into eternal death, into hell. And what Jesus acknowledges here in the strongest of terms is make no mistake, hell is a real place of awful, conscious, eternal separation from God. You can argue all day if you want. Is it dark? Is it flames? It doesn't matter. God's not there. That's what matters. God is not there. And Jesus says these are the two options. And while it sounds perhaps contradictory for me to say, Jesus' message here is that another way we can elevate the atmosphere as followers of the Son is by telling people the truth about heaven and hell, about their need for a Savior, not shying away from it because it might be uncomfortable. Something could be a whole lot more uncomfortable than that. That's what Jesus is saying here. Talk to people about eternity. Letting people know, speaking the truth in love always, of course, but that when we die, we're going one place or the other, there's no third option. And there's no second chance. And where we go, here's what Jesus wants us to communicate. We know this, but we forget. What he wants us to communicate is that where you go depends on what you do with Jesus Christ in this life. Do I repent and trust him as Savior? Do I say, no, I don't need him? And if I understand what Jesus is saying here correctly, what he's really doing in this this section, 43 through 48, is he's pleading He's pleading with you if you've not decided, you, if you've not decided to make up your mind. And specifically what he's pleading with you to do is figure out and name what it is that's keeping you from deciding. That's why he uses the extreme language. Why, why, if you're in that position, or maybe you think back in your life, your story, you once were in that position, is, I trust Jesus, but. Uh, that sounds really good. However, 
What is the but? What is the however? What is the thing? It's a question. It's a complaint. It's a, it's a misunderstanding. It's a possession. It's a fear. There's something that in many of our lives and in some of your lives here this morning, you're, if the truth is told, you're unwilling to give it up. And because you're not willing to give it up, you haven't trusted Jesus. He says, what is it? Cut it off. If I may paraphrase what Jesus says here, while it may require a radical act of surrender, what Jesus is saying is this, far better to be headed to heaven without it than to hell with it. Whatever that thing is that keeps you from Jesus, what is it? Is it worth eternally being separated from the God who made you and loves you that you heard so much about already this morning? Figure it out and take it to Jesus. And again, what he's saying, again, it sounds counterintuitive, but Jesus is saying, what Jesus is saying is those of us who follow the Son, we elevate the atmosphere when we speak the truth about eternity to those who need Jesus. And then he says one more thing. So if you want to elevate the atmosphere, focus on what unites us. That comes first. Secondly, stress that the small stuff matters. Thirdly, speak the truth about eternity. And then fourth, this is really sort of Jesus wraps it all up when we ple- we, he pleads with us to aim to serve him. Aim to serve Jesus without compromise. Be an uncompromising servant of Jesus Christ. You know, I just want to, to let you know that if you're confused by verse 49, that's Okay. In verse 49, Jesus says, Mark tells us Jesus said, everyone will be salted with fire. If you're confused by what Jesus said there, that's okay, because nobody knows what he's talking about here. I checked. I, in fact, I'm not, I'm, and I'm not messing with the Bible, I'm not down on the Bible, but I looked, and as I read about this verse, I found one source that said, and this is somebody, these are people who love the Bible, who trust the Bible, who aren't trying to critique and take apart the Bible, but among good, faithful, honest students, scholars of the Scripture, this particular author I consulted said there are 15 distinct interpretations about what Jesus meant here. Another said he'd counted a dozen. Nobody knows what Jesus is talking about, for sure, at least not in an authoritative way. But there are some good guesses. Now, full disclosure, I did not read all 15 alternatives. There was no way that was going to happen in time for Sunday. But I read a few. I read a few. And the one that makes the most sense. So I guess what I want you to know is I'm coming at this very, very cautiously with the understanding very clearly that I may be absolutely wrong about this. But here's what I think based on what I saw. That what Jesus meant when he said, everyone will be salted with fire, the the explanation that makes the best sense to me is, is, is the one that links it to a, what is probably a very unknown, little-known fact about the Old Testament sacrificial system, the sacrifices and offerings that God's people brought to the tabernacle or the temple. Because in Leviticus 2.13, I'd never paid attention to this before until this week, but in Leviticus 2.13 it says, it, they, the people were instructed, when you bring your offering, your sacrifice, and place it on the altar to be offered up in fire to the Lord, before you offer it, you are to salt it. No leaven, no yeast, we know that, but to salt it. I don't know why, and we're not going to get into why, because I didn't have time to look that, look that up either. I just know that's what God said to do. Bring an offering, cover it with salt, and then offer it up as a sacrifice to the Lord. So, meaning that the idea seems to be in verse 49, that just like a salt would, would make a, a faithful observant of the Scriptures Jewish person think of sacrifice, 
right? Think of total sacrifice. Think of willing sacrifice. We, as Paul puts it in another place, are to offer ourselves up as total living sacrifices to the Lord. We're to lay it all on Jesus. Lay it all before Jesus. Just like a salted Old Testament sacrifice, you and I, if we're followers of the Son, are to totally, unreservedly offer ourselves to Him. Understanding, look at verse 49, it comes with a cost. Everyone is salted with what? What does it say? Fire. That speaks of trouble, persecution, suffering, hardship. That's part of the deal, part of the equation. But he says, offer yourselves up nonetheless. Nonetheless, because the way we do it is spelled out in the rest of the passage in verse 50. The way we do it is expressed there. Jesus says, salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one Another. What Jesus is saying is this, the way we do that, really the way that we offer ourselves as a total, living, uncompromising sacrifice is by living the way he's instructed us to do in the first 10 or 12 verses of the passage, by doing the things we've talked about already in an unreserved way, focusing on what unites us, the gospel, digging into and stressing the small stuff, speaking the truth about eternity, serving one another in whatever way we can. To Jesus, that's living a salty life. And he wants us to live salty lives. Because what he's saying in verse 50 is this. He is saying that, that just as salt, uh, the, the way that salt works, okay? One of the things that salt does, I know it preserves and I know it seasons. You know what else it does? It makes people thirsty. It makes people thirsty. And if I live my life, Jesus is saying this, if I live my life as a living sacrifice to Christ, and the way he's telling me to do here, some people are going to get thirsty. They're going to want what I've got. They're going to see the difference. And what Jesus is saying in verse 50 is, is a Christian who doesn't live that way, who doesn't do the things he's calling us to do, makes about as much sense as unsalty salt. No sense at all. Who wants that? And we're to live salty lives, uncompromising lives. As followers of Jesus, you make somebody thirsty for Jesus, you're elevating the atmosphere in a very powerful way. You know, at the beginning of his ministry, you will remember this, many of you, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, one of the first things he said to his disciples, not in Mark, it's in Matthew chapter 5, he said, gang, here's the deal as we begin. You are the salt, what? Of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's at the beginning, or near the beginning of his ministry. And that's a beautiful way to express the essence of Christian living, isn't it? You're salt of the earth. You're light of the world. We love that. We put it on pillows and plaques and hang it up around our house, remind ourselves these things are true because it's beautiful. And it is, and I'm not down on it. But here, it's three years later. For three years, these guys who were told that at the beginning, you're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Yes, Jesus, we love that. We don't know what it means, but we're with you, right? It's three years later, now they know. Because for three years they've watched Jesus do it and he has slowly been letting out the rope to let them do more and more themselves. After three years of following the Son, now he's telling them in a more exacting way, here's what it really means. Here's what it looks like in real life. 
Jesus is saying to them and to us in a way that is in fact meant to shatter any dreamy-eyed illusions we have about what serving Jesus looks like. It can be hard. We heard a a great story up here this morning, and, and it was wonderful. But behind the great story, am I right, there's a lot of hard, right? A lot of pain. A lot of adversity. It's worth it. There's a whole lot of hard. You know that. Your life is the same way. Jesus is saying there's the whole equation here. And he's saying in a way that shatters our false illusions. Guys, ladies, this is us. This is who we are. This is who I've called you and made you to be. And I am asking you, Jesus said, to live in a way in the real world that elevates the atmosphere so that everywhere you go and in whatever you do, someone is being pointed to Jesus. They're being made thirsty. You're salty, they're thirsty, Jesus wins. Or as the big idea of today's message puts it. This is the bottom line. The message of these 13 verses is that loyalty to Jesus should be our way of life. Loyalty to Jesus is to be, should be, our way of life. And here's the question I'll ask as we close. Where do you, where do I, need to align ourselves this morning with him to fit the profile? I'm going to ask you to stand as we pray, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. We have one more song we're going to close with. So let's stand together right now as soon as you finish writing and getting everything situated. I'm going to ask our prayer team just to come forward again as we did last Sunday so that they're available here. If you need someone to pray with, cannot stress enough. It's easy to walk across the street and get donuts. You may need prayer before you need a donut. That's what the prayer team is here for. But as you stand up and as they get situated, let's bow our heads and just, even though we've just kind of made a mini ruckus here, let's quiet our hearts before the Lord. Not in response to what Aaron said, solely in response to what the Spirit of God may be prompting in your heart, affirming in your heart, challenging or convicting you of in your heart. And before we sing and pray and and go on with the rest of this day, I want to just invite you to say, Holy Spirit, search me. Holy Spirit, show me. Reveal to me where I've chosen division over unity and what I need to do about it. Forgive me for wanting to delegate the small stuff. That's for other people. I have big jobs to do. Or maybe it's the other. Thank you, Lord, that you called me to do the small stuff. And it's just an expression of praise. I'm glad I get to do it. Maybe think about the places where we need to truly, because time is short, speak openly about eternity with our loved ones and our friends. Maybe it's simply, Lord, just remind me this week, because I so easily forget, to live an uncompromising life for Jesus. Before I pray, this is your chance to pray. So please do. And if you need to, as we're singing or when the service ends, come find one of our prayer partners that we're in the tag. Sometimes we just need to do it out loud in the company of someone else. I, I want to plead with you, if that's what you need, come grab one of them. That's why they're here. Let's just take the next few moments of quiet to lay it before him, and then we'll close. 
Father, I don't know what all you want to do in each heart here today. It's not my business. That's yours. Thank you that you always finish what you start and you are relentless in your pursuit of us because you love us. Father, I'm just going to ask as we close, we're going to sing one more song of praise and adoration to you. But that even through all of that and through the conversations which will follow and the list that some of us already have running in our head about what has to get done the rest of this day, that, Father, we might walk out of here. I'm just going to ask with the words of not of, of, of any person, but of Jesus in our minds and in our hearts, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. God, what more could we really, what, what better place could we start than that? To live in a way that makes others thirsty for Jesus and also at the same time to be at peace with one another. Father, thank you for your word that it is so beautifully exacting and precise. Thank you that, Father, even when you, your word, your spirit wounds us, that it's only to heal and strengthen us. That when you prune it, it's only, prune us, it's only so that we'll bear more fruit. Thank you, Father, that you're up to things here that we can't see. You're up to things in our lives that we can't see. You've got destinations for us that we haven't even begun to imagine. But do your work and do it well. Father, I pray for the restless hearts here today that are battling with you even now. I don't want to give in. I'm not going to go pray with somebody. I need to get out of here and move on and get away from this. Father, would you show them that you are not a harsh taskmaster. You are a gracious, good, good Father who delights in the cries and the prayers of your children. Father, take the things of truth that have been spoken here today and seal them to our hearts and let all the rest be forgotten so that it really will always and ever be about Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.